That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, this is Pia Baranchini, and welcome to Everything is the Best, the podcast where I get vulnerable and make others do it with me. The goal here is to deep dive into interesting people's journeys, finding common denominators, and hopefully making you feel not so alone. So let's laugh, let's cry, and let's get inspired to live our best lives. Hello, my darling. I've known Eddie socially for a long time. I've even eaten at his East Village restaurant a million years ago. I would hear of various projects he was working on over the years from time to time socially and read about them online, of course. But oh my God, I had no idea what a dynamic, full life Eddie Wang has lived. This man is a storyteller and life has given him stories to tell. I do not want to take up any more of your time because this is a long one and a good one. Please, please, please enjoy. Yeah, no, how have you been? Good, just, you know, had a baby. Yeah, no, I've been, I've been watching. I've been watching the whole thing. It's fine. It's been wonderful. <laughs> I mean, it's, I'm an easy kid, so everything's been easy. Like, I don't feel like my life is, also, I, I like, you know, I'm not one of those people that's like, she sits in bed, like, she goes to bed at six. Like, there's no ifs, stands, or buts about it. And like, then we like live our life. Yeah, it's good. You know, like, the, the parents I, I tend to get along with, one, they just bring their kid like it's the homie. Yeah, and we do that with her a lot. You know, it's funny when you have the parents that are like, they really divide the child's life from their life and reality. And I'm like, you, your kid's going to figure it out. And uh, my parents brought me everywhere. Also, that's how you learn that you're like at the bottom of the totem pole. Yeah. You can't just like act crazy wherever you are, that you have to have some sort of decorum and like, you know, whatever. I can't go on about this, but like, that's what, that's how Davide was raised. He was yeah. like, I was. No, I enjoy of- talking about this to be honest. Cause it's like, I remember distinct moments as like a child under the age of six, even where like I was developing emotional intelligence, just being in rooms with my parents. with other Absolutely. Oh, shit, you know? Absolutely. Like, Oh, aunties. Like that. <laughs> Were you running around? Okay, so just jump right in at this point because I'm dying to know, because I know you hung out at your parents' restaurants a lot, and I would love to know how your parents were, you know, went from being like immigrants from Taiwan to opening up these like very big restaurants. What are they being, what was it called? Cattleman's Ranch Steakhouse? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah. It's incredible. It's very funny. So no, you know what it was, was my, my dad, it's like well-documented in fresh off the boat, but yeah, yeah. You know, as I've gotten older, I've become more revealing and forthcoming with the story. But, um, you know, my dad is essentially a street dude from Taiwan and mm-hmm. it's not like a weird thing. Like Taiwan is, is a gangster state, you know, like there's a large portion of our government and representatives are openly gangsters and, yeah. you know, everybody knows how they got their bread because, you know, it was always a, a country that changed hands, was occupied many times, yeah. it was under martial law. So, you know, street gang, every single neighborhood, every single park had a street gang. My dad was one of those kids and was just getting in so much trouble that after the military, his family shipped him to America and he had to figure it out. He was like a waiter. He was a bartender, bumped around, got my mom pregnant. Mm -hmm. My mom's family had some money and they had a furniture store. So that was Uh, the way they made money. But they had six kids. All six kids worked in the furniture store. Their kids worked in the furniture store. But uh, my dad was a hustler and he was quite sharp. So my grandfather took a liking to my pops and he started running the store. Uh, Around when I was six, my grandfather had pancreas cancer and he committed suicide. And it was like, it was tough. It was very tough for the whole family. And uh, a lot of like infighting. And uh, we split off because, because at the end of the day, my grandfather basically said to my dad, you've been running the store. We want you to run the store, but I have one son. And when I die, he's going to own the store. Mm. And my dad was like, Look, I, I love you. Like he was my dad's best friend. Yeah. He taught my dad everything. Mm. And he really loved my grandfather, but he was like, I can't, I can't work for your son. Yeah. He's not going to work for his brother-in-law after. Yeah. It's a difficult thing to swallow. I'm a, I'm a man myself and I was a somebody back home in my neighborhood. And it's this tough, it's a tough thing to swallow. And so the fam- we were kind of excommunicated. So we ended up in Florida. Mm. And oh, that's I- how you ended up in Florida. Yeah. And so right. I was like nine. And the whole year I was nine, I didn't see my dad. Because my mom was like, yo, I love you. We got three kids. But like, how are you going to feed this family? Yeah. My mom is a very, very sharp and like results driven woman. She was just like, <laughs> I love you. We got these three seats, but like, where are you going to get the money to water these trees? Mm-hmm. You know? And so it was a fucked up year. It was wild. I remember it just like <laughs> my dad was in Florida. I never saw him. My mom would go see him periodically. When my mom went to see him, my aunt would just come check on us at the crib. I was nine. No. She would just come check on you. How old are the other kids? Six and three. So I'm sitting in this house and I remember my aunt was just ordering Domino's pizza to the crib and all the boxes piled up. Like my mom was gone for two weeks. And I remember I was horrified because my aunt was like kind of staying with us, but was like in and out for most of the day. And I'm like, what's your, who, how old, who's the three-year-old? The three-year-old's Evan. That's my littlest brother. So what's Evan doing when you're nine and he's three and no one's there? <laughs> I have no idea. I remember sitting on the floor just, and it was around the moment the Berlin Wall came down. So I can't oh remember God. too much. 
But I remember watching the Berlin Wall come down. <laughs> I remember this wall of Domino's pizza boxing. <laughs> And I was like, metaphorically, even as a nine-year-old, I was like, I relate to these people with the Berlin Wall. And I feel like I'm separated by my family by like Domino's Pizza. And I was like, nightmare. But my dad ended up going down to Florida with a homie. And they started working as cooks at Steak and Ale. And he started to like steal the menus and the recipes. And he learned everything, how to make everything at Steak and Ale. Then he went to LNN Seafood and did the same thing. So he basically... That's how he ended up with the seafood restaurant, the steak restaurant. <laughs> yeah. And basically, he created his own like culinary school syllabus. He was yeah. like, steak and ale and LNN Seafood. These are wonderful restaurants. So yeah. then he opened a restaurant with the homie. And I still remember um, the week he opened, my mom was like, yo, we're, we're going to rejoin dad. I think he's got a way to make money. And, and my mom was funny because she had me when she was like 20, 21. Oh, so wow. I was her homie. She would yeah. tell me everything that I didn't, I had no reason to, I did not need to know. I know. I've had that conversation with my mom before where I was like, that was a lot of shit you told me that I didn't need to know about dad. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know none of this stuff. Like, I knew everything. Like, mm-hmm. all the girls told, I was like, yo, please. I was <laughs> just like drowning me in tea. <laughs> So then, you know, we, we goes down there and I remember, you know, my mom was like, we're going to rejoin your dad. He's got a restaurant. He's got money. We're going to do something. And I was like, I, oh, you know, like, he's I've got heard, money. I heard this before. And we go and we stay at a Homewood Suites for two yeah. weeks. And I'm like, yo, mom, like, this is this is life we live in a home with sweets and yeah. i remember walking home every night looking at the logo it's just like sad duck Ugh, yeah and i'm like i'm in the duck hotel <laughs> <laughs> and i remember like across the street was all those motels that people stayed in that they shot the florida project so that was the oh we my on. god and so i grew up like there yeah and and luckily my dad hit it big he made these, I remember he made these fucking drop biscuits, right? And they were kind of like the Red Lobster biscuits. Mm-hmm. And they were so good. And <laughs> I swear to God, we owe our life to these biscuits because he would give them out for free and he would give them the customers as much biscuits as they wanted. And that was the best part of the restaurant. At yeah. The food was these biscuits. And uh, it was like the all you can eat breadsticks at Olive Garden. He was the biscuit guy. He was a biscuit. That was the draw. That was his strategy. And mm-hmm. I was like, you smart. You fucking smart. Like, white people like carbs. And, and, and they, they like free stuff. And they like, it, especially down there in Florida. They yeah. love an all-you-can-eat. <laughs> that was it. Anywhere was like, in the South. Get some biscuits, you know? Yeah. Get some pina col- he was selling pina coladas. And it was, it was wonderful. So um, then he made some money. And we moved into a house. And it was cool, but yeah, that's that's the story. Like my so dad was not always in the restaurant, then, huh? Yeah, I my first job was in that restaurant. Yeah, he fired me like three times. Came back, <laughs> like he'd fire me. I go work at Boston Market, and I come back. <laughs> <laughs> my God, Boston Market! I would, when I was in elementary school, I'd be like, "Can we get Boston Market on our way home?" <laughs> you know, I'm completely <laughs> trashed. You know what I mean? It's like. I could do the chef shit, but really I got a taste for like the finer things like chilies. Most good chefs do. Most good chefs want trash food in their off time. 
I've certain friends that like they will only go eat at like three restaurants in LA and they're all very shishi, you know, like, you know, Will, we joke, Will will eat three restaurants, Stella, Lupiat, and Escuela. And I'm like, dog, that's it. Like these are my three <laughs> options of dining with you. <laughs> David and I heard this day because he grew up poor as fuck. And he, and then before we met, he was just eating cans of lentil soup. Like he can't even see the can anymore. And I remember I would like watch him on FaceTime. He'd get home from work really late and he would just open up this can of fucking lentil soup and put tons of olive oil on it. And maybe he'd put some pasta in it. And he's like, I don't want to ever see that again. Like, and he's like, we're going to Stella. (laughs) 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 But LA only has three good restaurants, by the way. But actually, you know, which is, we'll talk about later, you know, all the good cutty spots. Yeah. I love it. Like I actually think LA got better food than New York because I got all my spots and there's nothing really? else to do but eat food and hike here. So <laughs> there's nothing else to do. Yeah, I walk, I eat, I walk, I eat, you know. So I wanna also talk briefly about your your you attending Roland's college because I think it's really interesting. first of all, why I had you on here, one, because I love you, but you've literally checked every fucking box that someone can can in their career. Like it's pretty <laughs> unbelievable. And I think it's funny that like, you know, I, I know that you kind of grew up like kind of like a bad boy and getting into trouble, but then you go to Roland and like had like multiple academic awards and like wrote for yeah. the paper. And like, I tell me about that. Was that like, did you always, were you always inclined at school or does it come easy to you? Or like, what was that like clicking your brain? Well, for me, my thing was, if I didn't get good grades, I was getting hit. So I was like, oh, got it. line is, I got to find a way to get good grades. Okay. Mm -hmm. And there was all kinds of ways. And I always made sure to get good grades, but I didn't really go to school all the time. Okay. What happened was I ended up testing very high on some like IQ tests and like the PSAT. Mm -hmm. And they randomly had us take the PSAT in like seventh or eighth grade. Did you even study for it? No. No, I just... I was, it's, it's, I was just lucky. Like my mother is very smart. Like my, okay. it's, I really, I didn't do shit. I was, a, I was a fuck up. My mom is just smart and the genes passed down. Like we have yeah. two cousins with like near perfect SAT. My brother's a national merit finalist. But anyway, I, I did really well until I started smoking weed, yeah. but they sent me to this like special kid camp and we took college courses in ninth grade. Um, and there was one class I took called Writing with Aristotle. And the teacher had us read Julius Caesar and Jonathan Swift. And I was like, yo, Julius Caesar <laughs> is the illest, like, <laughs> sweet story of all time, like loyalty, betrayal. I was like, this shit is hard. And I remember he had us debate, like, who was the criminal. And I, like, I represented Brutus. I was like, I like well, Brutus. He's loyal. He's a good dude. And, and I remember representing him in a mock trial and he gave me the review. He's like, you have a very different perspective of like crime and punishment, law and order than like a lot of other kids. Because you, well, you had a very different background than most kids, especially with your dad and everything. Yeah. And, and, and violence generally, it was just, I just a different perspective. And he's like, I really like this perspective, but I have to tell you, you're a very stilted writer. And a lot of it is because you don't have vocabulary. You mm. speak in like kind of stilted English. He was very kind. He was like stilted English. (laughs) And he was like, you write in kind like 
in Ebonics in a way because your references were rap music, okay? Yeah. My parents didn't know to give me certain books. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I Like, I remember I didn't watch The Christmas Story till high school, and I didn't know who, like, Mr. Smith goes to. I remember, like, these kids would know these movies their parents were showing them. And I had no reference. And yeah. We were, we were watching, like, kung fu movies from the Chinese grocery store. So we yeah. were very, very immigrant. And he just said to me, he's like, look, man, like, you're kind of, like, trapped in your own brain because you don't have enough words. Like you have these thoughts and you have these feelings. Like, oh, that was your little aha moment. Yeah. And I was like, mom, I got back from this camp. I told my mom, like, yo, you got to drive me to the library after school. She's like, why? Oh. I think I'm oh. stupid. Like, I, I don't know English like that. And she was like, okay. And I would just go to the library and read books after school. Cause I was like, I'm not learning enough English at home. Because my yeah. mom came to this country at 17, didn't speak any English. Mm-hmm. She had me four years later. My mom's cutest story, and you'll relate to this because of your family background too. She learned English by watching I Love Lucy, but also she took the yellow pages and would call every number in the yellow pages and just talk to people. No! <laughs> Try to have conversations. No! Yeah. So... I mean, I grew up in a house like that and, you know, I took on writing. Writing became this thing that I really loved and just worked on almost every day on my own reading and writing because I was like, man, I have these feelings and I don't want to be trapped. Davide feels that way. That's our biggest issue. I mean, I know my mom felt my mom, but like that's Davide's. It's funny. I feel like you guys could have a conversation about that because there are times where he'll look at me and he'll like, be really heated about something and he'll get emotional because he's like, I don't have the fucking words. Yeah. I don't have the words. Like, and he, it's like, it, you like hit a wall. I mean, you saying, oh my God, I think I'm stupid makes my heart break because I could just see this like little nine-year-old being like, oh my God, there's a whole world out there that I'm like missing out on. Yeah. What a motivation. And, yeah. Even when you learn English, right? If you grew up as a native speaker of another language, your brain thinks that way. Totally. And I've been reading all these studies about how learning a language wires your brain in a way because language is a reflection of like the, the logic of a culture in many mm. ways, the reasoning of culture. And so like David probably has the same thing with Italian, you know, but luckily it's like Big a Roman language. For me, the Chinese, like we literally read books the opposite way. Absolutely. You know? Yeah, of course. And and the subject verb is different. So in a funny way, like rap music made the most sense to me. Of course. Like, like a lot of passive voice and things like that. And, and it, it stuck with me though, even at Rollins, when I ended up, I won like the English award. But the-, <laughs> the teachers sat me down and they were like, we actually can't graduate. You, you won the award. You're an incredible writer, but you have no grammar. Like your grammar you don't know how to use semicolons. It, yeah. um, I had to go to the senior writing tutor center and one of my homegirls tutored me and she's like, I feel so bad. This is, it was a very awkward situation because like mm-hmm. you're smart, but like you have no grammar. <laughs> I didn't know when to capitalize or I didn't know any of the stuff. And I had somehow gotten through life to the age of 22 and won awards, but it was really like my ideas. And yeah. I'm still, as a writer learning shit every day. Like I just had a talk with my, my mentor and, and he is teaching me 
to kind of bring the emotions to the surface of the page. Mm. He was like, I think sometimes when things get difficult and you get to a point where you don't necessarily have the word, you'll tell a joke. Or you'll totally. Find out. You find totally. And he's mm. like, I need you to like sit down and like when you're uncomfortable, just know you need to keep going down that road. So writing became this thing for me that everything in my life, the challenges in my life were manifested and reflected in writing. Like mm-hmm. it was just so crazy that it mirrors you. And I You're think- an extreme natural storyteller. You paint a picture very vividly when you speak about every scenario, like everything you've said so far, I can see it so clearly. Thank you. I think it's like my brain takes a snapshot and I can yeah. remember how she tastes and smells, but mm-hmm. really as a, like, I'm really not a great writer. Cause I, I mean, I'm working on it and getting better, but I'm working on the skill of being a writer because you're right. It's like, I, my parents, we, we, I grew up in a home with a like tradition of like oral storytelling. Incredible. Do you love a delicious drink? I do too. But I, I really don't like all the added secret things that you don't think are in your drink, especially sugar, because sugar makes me crazy. That is why I drink sound. Drink sound is unsweetened organic sparkling waters made with teas and botanicals. They're certified organic and completely unsweetened. They've created tons of amazing and super fun, unique flavors like blueberry with cinnamon and hibiscus tea and grapefruit with lavender and ginger tea. I mean, doesn't that sound delicious? They taste so good too. They're perfect throughout the day as they are both caffeine and caffeine-free options. So I like to have one as a little bit of a pickup after my matcha mid-morning. And then in the afternoon when I'm like tired of drinking water, I'll use a caffeine-free option to thirst my quench and have a little pick-me-up. They also come in BPA-free cans. And by the way, they are to die for gorgeous. (laughs) The packaging is correct. Please, please take it upon me. Trust me. I love drink sound and I know you're going to love it too. And it is such a nice thing to offer guests when they come over, by the way. So obviously we have a code for you. If you use PIA20, you get 20% off your order when you visit drinksound.com slash PIA. That's PIA20 for 20% off your order when you visit drinksound.com slash PIA. What's up, well-beings? I'm Kelly Noonan-Gorris, and this is The Heal Podcast. Every Thursday, I interview the leading experts in health and healing, as well as real people with extraordinary healing stories. Whether you want to heal a physical diagnosis, a mental health issue, a past trauma, or heal our planet, The Heal Podcast is for you. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss that one episode that holds the answers you've been searching for. You can follow us on Instagram at at HealDocumentary and at Kelly Gores and catch episode clips on Heal Documentary's YouTube channel. Don't forget to tune in every Thursday anywhere podcasts are found. So after that, how did you end up, as you moved to New York to go to school and you became an attorney? So, yeah, when I was in college, so I caught a couple charges in high school, in college. Yeah, you did bad boy stuff. Bad stuff, you know, got in trouble. And that was a big reason why I doubled down on books, because when I did get arrested, I was facing like, I was facing a very real, it was aggravated assault. It involved a motor vehicle. So I had hit somebody with my car. It was like a 16 person fight. 
I did some shit, but my teachers really stuck up for me. And they were like, mm. part of this is racially motivated. Okay. You also know Eddie sells weed and whatnot. And his friends, because I, basically Rollins was like a private school. Yeah. My dad had me come back home to Rollins because I wasn't doing well in Pittsburgh and I wasn't going to class. And he was like, we got to keep an eye on you because I had already gotten in trouble in high school. So Rollins was the closest school to our house. And got it. that was the only reason. So I have a lot of friends who went there randomly. Yeah, it's a great school. Like yeah, a really good a really school. good school. <laughs> yeah, and it's like a theater school because all the kids from New England boarding schools or private, they all, a lot of them go to Rollins. Mm. Like, you know, there's like Carnegie's and Mellon's kids in there. The people that have their names on banks. Like the yeah. Kids. And, um, Nick Fouquet um, went there. Who? Nick Fouquet. Oh. I was randomly there. found that out. Re- yeah, there was like a, an amazing, it's like, but there's also like very artistic, cool kids. Yeah. Mr. The- Rogers went there. Like Mr. Rogers oh, went wow. there. The Mad Dog from Mike and the Mad Dog in the morning in New York. Mad oh. Dog. <laughs> it's funny. And then, uh, but no, they, they had a great English department. But what happened to me was I got in this fight. And there were teachers that were like, we know this kid. He writes about everything going on in his life. We're very aware. He's very open and honest. He's trying to work through it. Like, in a lot of ways, it was like, we vouch for him. Okay. And these teachers saved my life. Yeah. Like, they really, really saved my life. Like, a couple of them gave references and, and submitted statements. And, you know, I, I was lucky I was able to plead out. I was on mm-hmm. felony probation. And that's when the teachers were like, you're going to come to office hour every day. You know, like you're going to come to class, <laughs> come to office hour, and then you're going to go home. And I would get tested. It was like embarrassing for a couple of weeks because like the cop would just show, my PO was cool. She was a very good PO, like actually helped me get back on my feet. Yeah. On my POs. But she would come and pull me out of class and I get tested and I go right back into class. And so oh, everyone wow. on campus knew, knew. Like, this kid is a perp. You know, and mm-hmm. it was like the second embarrassment. The first embarrassment was thinking I was stupid as a kid. The second one was like, <laughs> damn, I really fucked my life up. So then I just really doubled down on reading books and writing and I worked really hard. I, yeah. I just tried to recreate my life, but then I couldn't get a job after college. Uh, and it was my dad's idea to go to law school. He was like, you're always obsessed with social justice you know, you went through the court system yourself. I would volunteer at teen court representing other kids with like, yeah. and I got my brother off for something he did. And my dad was like, you know, that, they say you're pretty good at teen <laughs> court. You should, you should go be an attorney. So I went, I did the law thing, but, and I did very well. Worked at like the Innocence Project. I won a competition to get a job at a top 50 firm, but it wasn't for me. And, and you would appreciate this fashion moment. So I, I get my first check. And I'm like, yo, I'm going to Saxon Avenue. Like, I'm going to get some shit. So I needed a suit to go to court for work. Oh, my God. What did you buy? Yo, I bought a Dolce & Gabbana <laughs> suit with lime green pinstripe. <laughs> it was the name of the lime green pinstripe. And I got a lime green Brioni tie. No. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I look like fucking Sprite Lemon Lime. <laughs> it was bad. And... I go to court and the supervising attorney that brought me was like, what, what are you, what are those? I'm like, what? yo, just don't change your mind. He's like, you look like you're going to the NBA draft. And I was like, 
no, that's that's fly. And he's yeah. like, no, that's not that's not fly. Like I was totally I was I was ridiculous. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like when I showed up in New York and Florida, <laughs> I was straight Jimmy Jazz. Like I would match a green hat to a green jacket to fucking green shoes. Yeah, but know? like what year is that? 2004 so it was yeah i know 2005 like that's what my like you know we dealing boyfriend would wear i would buy him air maxes that matched his fucking stupid that's hot like shorty had an air max yo i remember a dude air max 90s was like (laughs) oh my god i i knew another dude in law school this kid would always cop air max 95s and two pair like yo why you always got two he's like yo my girl be keeping the 95s on in the bedroom. I kill you crazy. You're oh, crazy. You guys, you guys are doing Air Max 95 role play in bed. I ran the phone for my boyfriend's weed service. Oh, word. Nice. That's like it like ran out of like when I was a freshman at Parsons. That was like, <laughs> my brother's boyfriend, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I was yeah, I was I, I lived that life. I lived above a New York thing. Oh, oh my god. That was amazing. I loved it down there. I was yeah. in it. That's what's up. <laughs> I, I had a I had a doozy. Cool. Um so I get so the outfit reference that was like you were like my dream guy. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was wearing. I was like, oh and my God, then, bad boy, his fitted cap matches his fucking sneakers. Yeah, but the thing is, is like that style didn't work at a law firm. Yeah, no. I had a half moon in my head and they were just like, look, culturally, you got you to gotta, you gotta do something about this. <laughs> 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 and I remember they gave us this talk. You're going to die laughing. They gave us this talk one day, like, yeah, to be a rainmaker at a law firm, you got to bring business in, right? You got to bring in clients. And so I was working with who kid and G unit at the time. And I was like, yo, who kid got a lot of like legal stuff, <laughs> legal stuff going on. So I brought who kid into the office to meet with him. We're like, yo, this is, this is not the client. We're looking yeah. They're like the opposite. <laughs> Thank you. Oh my God. So that didn't last yeah. very long. Yeah. I, I had no common sense back then. It was just like a wild <laughs> cultural clash. And yeah, but how are you, by the way, how are you supposed to know anything about, like, the decorum of a New York City law firm? Like, that's so specific. Like, if you hadn't grown up in any way seeing or, like, I wouldn't, you know what I mean? Like, I growing up where I grew up, I still wouldn't have even have known. Yo, my dad wore crocodile shoes. You yeah. Know? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yo, man, like, what well, I'm crocodile at the toe. And so <clears throat> I didn't know anything. And I got the job through, like, a minority competition. It was, like, yeah. minorities win and you go. And that's the issue with these competitions or it's tough because you may get the job, but there's a huge cultural chasm with the expectations at work. So even it makes it worse, right? Yeah. I'm a person like I, I guess I've made it and I've done well, but it was, I failed so many times Mm because I didn't know how to operate in that. Yeah. Because also think about, I mean, that's where like just mentorship is it's vital. It's like something our country like doesn't have set up in any way, but like it should be start in elementary school. Like you had teachers vouching for you, like all up until like without that, without somebody believing in you or helping you through something like that's where kids just go fuck this. I'm not even going to try. Yeah. And and I was lucky. I had some black mentors and there was a Korean dude at work that was helpful. But in the end it was like, we were so different because they had been assimilating their whole lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was trying to do it and turn on a dime. So I, I ended up getting laid off in the great layoff of like 2010. 
Yeah. And I remember the day I got laid off, I just got really high with my office mate because he was losing his mind. He was from oh, Saudi yeah. And he'd like worked his whole life to get there. And I was like, I don't know. He's like, what are you going to do? I was like, I mean, I'm going to take my severance and buy as much weed as I can. Yeah, just out of it. Off. Yeah. I was like, I'm, I'm just going to do what I used to do. And, and then I wrote a list. I said, you know what? This is a good question, though. If reality is not in my way, what were the five things I would want to do in my life? And I wrote, number one, I wanted to be the point guard of the Knicks. It wasn't going to happen. <laughs> number two is the quarterback of the Washington football team. Mm-hmm. And then three was like stand-up comedian. In some order, it was stand-up comedian, direct movies, open a restaurant. And I was like- So you did three of the five. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, yo, three out of five, I could do this. And the laugh lounge is like seven blocks away. So I was like on some, you know, eat, pray, love. I was like, yo, I'm going to change my life today. You know? So I just walked down to the laugh lounge and was like, how do I get on stage? (laughs) (laughs) And they were like, bring five friends to pay and we'll give you five minutes. Oh, cool. Come to open mic. And and then my head clicked. I was like, wait, what if I bring six friends? Yeah. Six minutes. Like, I mean, yeah, you bring 30 friends, maybe you get 30 minutes. I was like, okay, this is cool because I was already promoting parties. So I just started a comedy night and I would just go tell jokes, do shit. All my friends remember it back then. But I was a stand-up comic doing the show, getting up all around the city for six months. And that's when one of the managers of the comedy club was like, because my name at that time was Duck Sauce. I would go up there like, yo, Duck Sauce is here. And I would do Latin Quarter and it was funny. And I would <laughs> always bring chicken wings and fried rice. Because mm-hmm. it's like a party, you know, like immigrant culture, you can't have a party without food. So yeah. I'm, like, I'm not about making money here. I'm trying to like become a comedian. So I would bring chicken wings and fried rice for everybody. And so they call me Duck Sauce. And he's like, yo, Duck Sauce, you, you like always doing stuff with food. You should, you should get an appearance on the Food Network and just fuck shit up. And I was like, that is a good idea. That's so, how that happened? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was like, yo, you don't have to like earnestly compete. Just get on and fuck shit up. And I was like, yo, you yeah. what? Because he's like, you do this thing where you seem like a very well-mannered Chinese person. And then it's like, yo, he's fucked up. Yeah, and, yeah. And they were like, you should get on like that guy Fieri show. So I went home. I'm watching the Nick game. I, I distinctly remember this. And I, I looked at Craigslist and they were doing castings for the Food Network. That's so oh. random. Like, what are the odds? That's so fucking random. Yeah. And I can't even remember the person that told me. That is divine timing in its fucking purest moment. Universe. Literally. So cool. That's so, you're like, let me Google how to do this. And it was like, here. Yeah. And in yeah. life happens like that. You just like, angels come through and you just yeah. have to listen. You really do. Well, so, you, a lot of people don't listen and they don't write down what they want to do either. Yeah. So I, I did it. I applied. Three months later, this is the dumbest thing. I'm in a Costco with my boy, Stefan, because he had a Costco membership. And there was a deal on Coconut Ciroc. So I was like, yo, we got, we got to go to Costco. <laughs> because my boy had the Costco membership, I knew we had to go get the deal on Coconut Ciroc. <laughs> this is how broke we were. All right? And I was literally like... Coconut Ciroc. <laughs> Ciroc is... Fucking garbage. That is so hard to drink. What did you mix it with? 
Like no, pineapple. pineapple juice. Oh, I knew that. I was drinking Coco Loso's crazy. I hope you're taking vitamins every day right now. Yeah. <laughs> you have to undo so much damage. Well, I, was like, I, <laughs> I thought I was rich. I, I like had a balcony in my crib. I was that like, is rich, by the way, for New York downtown. So me and my boy, I was like, yo, man, we need Coco Losos. We're going to be like some bad bitches out here on this balcony drinking this Coco Loso. Yeah. The Food Network called me literally at Costco and was like, yo, you're on the show. And oh my I, God. I lost my mind. And now if I look at it, I'm like, what? Like you're a guest on a Guy Fieri show. Like, where well, you're going to start a career from that. But I literally did. I was like, I'm going to fit in. I'm going to do this. Uh-huh. And I did the show. It was great. The show actually did nothing for me. But I got confidence. Mm-hmm. And my mother came to see me. And she was so sad because we had just taped the show. She came and watched. And I did really good. But she was like, Eddie, why are there people running up and down your stairwell at night? Mm. And I was like, oh, oh, my friends, they, they like, they want, we want to play 2K at night. She's like, they're not playing 2K. They're here for five minutes and they leave. And my yeah, dad, she knows. He's selling drugs. <laughs> and I was like, it's, you're making it sound a lot worse than it is. It's just like, I'm selling weed, you know? Yeah. And my mom started to cry. And mm. we dinner at this restaurant, Wanjo in, in Koreatown. And she just started to cry. And I was, oh my God. Like, I never felt bad for what I was doing at all. Yeah, it was fine. But when you see your mother cry, and you know how much effort moms put in, it was. I was just like, she was like, I can't believe I raised you to do this, and I spent all my energy. Mm, it just yeah. felt like I, was, I wasted my mom's life, and that oh. was like the most painful thing. So I said, all right, I'm, I'm gonna figure a way out of this. My mom would do something. So I took the money I had and I opened Bauhaus, and I made the same dish I made on the Guy Fieri show. Perfect. And the, the, I think what was different about Bauhaus was it looked like shit and it was in a basement, but we were oh, playing. I like, went there, by the way, I lived on 7th and D. I went there a lot. Oh my God. Yeah. So you remember like I was yeah. playing like Dipset mixtapes and everything. And mm-hmm. it was a vibe because no Chinese restaurant ever felt like a record store or like a trap house. No, no, no. Well, it was mostly run by like old people or like you have, yeah, there was not like, oh, someone like cool owns this. Yeah. So it was just me and my brother and then like kids from Parsons and NYU were our employees and I taught them how to make Chinese food and it, it was, it just took off. It was a crazy thing. And then my life just changed forever for the better, you know? Unbelievable. Yeah. That's how it had, it was a wild ride. We get so many questions on the podcast, you know, about relationships. And a lot of them come down to these moments where women will say something like, but my clock is ticking. And my response is always, you don't know that. And just get modern fertility. (laughs) Because with modern fertility, you can plan accordingly. I mean, that's why modern fertility was created. It's an easy and affordable way to test your fertility hormones at home with a simple finger prick. You just mail it in a prepaid label and you'll get your personalized results within 10 days. You'll get insight into all your hormone levels and your ovarian reserve, aka how many eggs you have compared to other women your age and other 
important fertility factors. And this way you can say, hey, maybe I want to be proactive about my planning because I don't have many eggs as I thought I would. Or, wow, I seem to be abundant. Maybe I should remove the stressful thoughts from my brain for a little bit and live my life a little bit more. It's brilliant either way. And then you can take that information and you can talk one-on-one with a fertility nurse to review your results and options for next steps. And they will coach you as to how to give this information to your doctor. Traditional testing with your doctor can cost over a thousand dollars, but with modern fertility, you get exactly the same information for $159, which is a fraction of the price. And if you go to modernfertility.com slash Pia, you can get $20 off your test. Also, if you have an HSA or FSA, you can get those dollars towards modern fertility. If you want kids one day or maybe in the future, this is clinically sound information about your body that will help you make better decisions or the right decision to lead your life in the direction you want it to go. Right now, Modern Fertility is offering our listeners $20 off the test when you go to modernfertility.com slash Pia. That means your test will cost $139 instead of the hundreds or thousands it could cost at the doctor's office. Get $20 off your fertility test when you go to modernfertility.com slash Pia. That's modernfertility.com slash Pia. Feeling your best starts with what you eat. You know that. You've known that. And you also know, if you listen to this podcast, that Saqqara helps you to not just live a healthy, balanced lifestyle, but truly enjoy it with delicious, plant-rich meals and functional wellness essentials that build a foundation for radiant health. Saqqara is a wellness company anchored in food as medicine on a mission to nourish your body through the power of plants. Saqqara gives you the tools you need to transform your life with their organic ready-to-eat meal delivery system and functional wellness essentials. Let me tell you about this meal delivery. I don't know how they do it, but it's delicious and it arrives fresh anywhere in the U.S. The nutritionally designed chef crafted breakfast, lunches, and dinners are made with powerful plant-based ingredients, and they are delicious. They also happen to help boost your energy, support your digestion, curb your sugar cravings, and get your skin glowing. Saqqara Shop is also stocked with some of my faves. You guys know I post about them all the time on my Instagram. Listen, these are functional plant-rich products and wellness essentials that help create the body that you want so you can feel strong and vibrant. Like the best-selling Metabolism Super Powder, which I post about constantly. Literally just mix this stuff with your coffee or throw it in a smoothie or drink it with water because it tastes good. It's a dream. They also have delicious plant-based protein bars, tons of good tea, and their newest functional snack, the Super Seed and Nut Blends. Sakara has received rave reviews from Vogue, Goop, the New York Times, and more. And now, Sakara is offering our listeners 20% off their first order when they go to sakara.com slash best or enter code best at checkout. That's Sakara, S-A-K-A-R-A.com slash B-E-S-D to get 20% off your first order. Sakara.com slash best. I mean, it's still, what, what part was uh, Bergdorf Hoodman? What, at what point did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> that was, that was actually. Cause you weren't, cause you weren't living in downtown New York and having like a weed service without a streetwear brand. Yeah. At some point you had to. You had to print t-shirts. Like that was just part of it. Everybody the- was printing t- my that, that bad boy I dated. We printed t-shirts. 
Tino with the fish. Remember he had like a t-shirt printing company side yeah. hustle because he was like, yeah. everyone's printing t-shirts. Yeah. And we were all friends. Like that's how I think I know a lot of your friends is we, uh, we met, like I met Sean and James at like magic one year and um, we were homies, like the, all the Lola kids. Yeah. And I met Sean on like a Southwest airlines flight. We sat together. Yes, I oh. <laughs> <laughs> it was really funny. And then, uh, but no, it was 06. I had gotten inspired. I, I really was like, Obama's the truth. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily think he did the best Great, job. Yeah, no. At the time, I really believed in him. And I really felt the country needed like big change. And I saw streetwear and sneakers was just exploding. And I said, you know, because I was a sneaker reseller. I would buy all the sneakers from cities. Like Vermont is a state, but a city in Vermont. And like Iowa, like random states that couldn't get SBs off, I would buy their whole inventory, open my apartment on the weekend and sell all the sneakers. And I started to be like, yo, a lot of these kids want to match the sneakers to a shirt. Oh, there you go. So I would time the drops to the colors of the sneakers and make coordinated shirts. And the first shirt I made was Obama 08. It looked like a Michael Jordan jersey. Mm-hmm. said Chicago 08, Obama 08, and that thing went bananas. Took off, yep. I was the first one to print Obama t-shirts. And then every, like, everyone downtown just knew me, knew me as Hoodman for a while. You know, that's Hoodman. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I would even sell the shit on the train. Like, on the way, if I was going to Flushing, i just put shirts in a plastic bag and walk through the train like a kid selling candy bars. Like, yo, yo, $10, $10. And I was just uh, like, yeah, I cool. was always hustling like that. Yeah. I got embarrassed once because I was doing it and these girls were like, oh my God, doesn't he go to our law school? And I was like, shit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I look like the fucking recycled can lady. So I'm Okay, so after this, there was like so many, then you transition into book and television and the book came from your blog, correct? Yeah. And, and so what happened was... By the way, if you were living on, in downtown New York and you were selling weed and had a fucking streetwear brand, you definitely had a blog. You had a blog spot. <laughs> I had a blog. <laughs> you know, and we were all living these parallel funny lives. Yeah. Like, it was so good. It was such a good time down there. But like, It was the best. When, yeah. and by the way, I've realized I had this aha moment the other day because I was like... Oh, New York's not dead. Like New York's still cool. But like it, and then I was like, no, Instagram killed partying. Yeah, it really did. It That's really when did. it changed. Cause it was like Cobra snake or fucking last night's party or like epically later or whatever, like photo guy, you would be like, Oh God, I hope I'm not on there. Or like, Oh, I really hope I'm on there tomorrow. But like now it's just real time, bad stuff. Like you can't, Yo, you know, the best remember Kirill was there. <laughs> Yes, I forgot about that. Oh my god! You know, everyone was just like rolling face in those photos, like yeah, looking wild. Crazy. Some girl started an Instagram account posting. I can't remember what it's called, but she was like, it, "It's just something stupid." Like, it, like it's basically like the Cobra Snake era. It was like this like weird indie thing, like and. Cobra Snake and Stevie Oki were my roommate. They rented a room from me at one point. So I was like, if she like finds photos of me on this thing, it's like me holding my cat, like smoking out of a bong. Like this can't go on the internet. Dude, I, I kind of need to see that. For that. No, a- I don't because now I've rebranded as a successful mother. You're a successful <laughs> mother. 
know, living no with my mom. <laughs> I remember that shit is you, you're right. Instagram really killed partying because, and also in a way fashion, because it used to be like, you had to really invest your like blood, sweat, tears, energy in a scene. Yeah. And then like even know where to buy the clothes. Yep. Now every scene is like, please dress like us. Please buy the starter pack. Here's the uniform mm-hmm. for this scene. Here's mm-hmm. the playlist on Spotify. Like mm-hmm. everybody mm-hmm. can be that kid in high school that showed up after summer break and was like, I have a new look, you know? 100%. No, I had to like earn my keep really hard yeah. downtown. Yeah. A lot of the down, like a lot of the stores would not even sell to people. They'd be like, yeah, we don't have your size. You don't have it. You, we, you don't want to wear this. Yeah, and totally. I loved, I loved that part of downtown. Yeah, A Life was like that. What was that other store that was on? Spring Union was like that on Spring. Spring Union. And then, uh, oh, oh, fuck. Why am I blanking? It was on Lafayette and, fuck, oh, I can't remember. They always had, they always had cool, like, was on Lafayette. they had, um, they sold like Home des Garcon wallets and then like sneakers. Nom de Guerre. Oh, no, I'm Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was downstairs. Yeah, it was downstairs. But like, there, you can't even have a store like that anymore, really. It's like... Yeah. I they feel more secret spots, but now it's yeah. just all blown out. But, you know, anyway. I think there's got to be another wave coming. There's there will. kids with some hot shit that don't want other kids to have it, and then it's going to be fly. You yeah. know? Because right now, it's just old people selling exclusive shit, where it's fake. <laughs> we just want you to pay more and work. Yeah, you know. Yeah, literally. But, yeah, no. What were we talking about? Oh, the blog turning into a book. Yeah. No. So then, what happened was, uh, the blog and restaurant took off, and I was doing interviews, and people thought I was funny enough. So agents started to hit me up, but they all wanted a cookbook, and mm. I actually thought it was corny being a chef. You know, like I grew up in a restaurant, I respected it. I, but. There was a way about the way chefs were presenting themselves. It's like all knowing and kind totally. of like superheroes that I was like, yo, man, like this is, this is a fam- more of a familial thing than I think people were making it out to be. Like, yeah. I still felt a lot of moms and grandmas were making dishes better than these chefs, but these chefs were out there like, yeah, I elevated that shit. And I didn't like it. So I didn't want to write a cookbook. Well, because it gets, it gets inclusive all of a sudden. Or I'm sorry, yeah. it gets exclusive yeah. all of a sudden. It gets too exclusive. Yeah, I really didn't like the culture of chefs at that time. It so was I very different. The recipe book. And there was one agent, his name was Mark Gerald, and he came, he repped 50 Cent, Riza, everybody, Asa Akira. And I remember him being culturally cool. And I said to him, I said, hey, listen, I know you want the cookbook, but I would like to write a memoir. And he's like, you make sandwiches, homie. Like, yeah. writing a memoir is hard. I don't mm-hmm. know what you think you're doing, but if you insist on this, I'm not going to tell you no. Send me the first chapter and the last chapter. But cool. you make me a promise. If I can't sell this book, you write, you write me a cookbook. <laughs> fair. Fair. I, I like the way you do business. So that weekend, I wrote the first chapter and last chapter and sent it to him. He said, wait, have you been sitting on this? And I said, no, I... I just wrote it this weekend. He's like, you wrote 70 pages in a weekend. And I was like, I've been waiting my whole life for this, bro. Yeah. Not a game. Like I'm writing myself out of this basement selling sandwiches. Like this is not my life. Mm -hmm. And he sent it out to the publishing houses that next Monday. 
by Wednesday, we had five offers. No. And yeah, it was crazy. It was a bonanza. And by that Friday, it was, it was crazy. And I still remember the first meeting for the book. It was, it was with this wonderful woman. I brought my brother and I thought it was kind of funny because I always like Goodwill Hunting when like they sent Ben Affleck in to do his Oh, yeah, movie. yeah. God, that's such a good movie. Yeah, I brought my brother. I told him like the questions to ask. And I was like, are you the representative? All right. <laughs> I remember the woman saying, this is a wonderful manuscript. Your agent set me up as a first meeting because he knows I'm not going to be able to make a healthy bid on this. But I want uh, to just congratulate you. You're going to have a great book. Confidence. Yo, 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 yo. Like, what do you mean you can't make a healthy offer? What would you offer? And she's like, I mean, honestly, like my budget is like $100,000 in advance. My brother jumped out. We will take it. No. (laughs) He's like, that is incredible. And I was like, yeah, that sounds sounds healthy to me. And my agent was smart. He didn't tell me anything because he, my agent was was smarter than anyone I worked at at a law firm or anything because he's like, this kid is a little bit hood rich and he's also... There's a big gap between Eddie's logic and how the real world works. Totally, totally. So he would he would strategically hide information from me and not get me too excited. Mm-hmm. So he didn't tell me what the range was for this book. And I remember doing this meeting, the woman saying a hundred thousand, me and my brother being like, Oh my God, we are rich. We could buy like yeah, we're retiring. Awards, yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> And this, and, and, and you know, it's funny because my dad made money. My dad was a, a couple, he had a couple million, a few million dollars, but we never saw it. And he always treated us the way, like, this is my shit, not yours. Yeah. So we never had our own money. We were so excited. I called my agent. I was like, yo, Mark, yo, this woman about to offer a hundred G's. Like, I think we should take oh it. Oh my like, God. Calm he- down. Yeah. And my agent was very sassy. And he was like, get out of here. Like, don't be a fool. Go through your interviews. Yeah. Don't ask any more about money. Yeah. He's like, vulgar. Don't ask people how much money they have. <laughs> <laughs> That's vulgar. That's so yeah. funny. Like, he's, still, yeah, he's still my agent and he's still like that. He's like, Eddie, get out of here. Stop it. You know? Yeah. I like him a lot. But um, it ended up going to, um, at the time, Spiegel and Growl. And then mm. there was Chris Jackson, who is... Uh, at the bookstore, McNally Jackson. Yep. Jackson. And I mean, best bookstore ever. Best bookstore ever. And uh, to me, he's the best editor working. You know, he he's edited all the Tanahasi books and um, Just Mercy, um, the other Westmore. I, I really looked up to him. And in a lot of ways, I credit Chris. He taught me how to write. You know, he turned me from a mixtape writer to like mm-hmm. professional writer. And he changed my life like that. That dude completely changed my life and trajectory of my life. You always end up where you're supposed to be. Yeah. If your if your intentions are good enough and you work hard, you end up where you're supposed to be. And you got it with the exact person it was supposed to be with. Yeah. He was he's he's it. And I, I never had more fun than writing with Chris. Ring Concierge is a luxury jewelry brand that was founded by Nicole Wegman in 2013 to truly disrupt a traditionally very male-dominated industry because this is now ultimate luxury jewelry designed for women by women. It's a favorite among celebrities and influencers, and 
I love the concept. So I do this all the time still because I'm such an annoying, weird person, but I love to continuously design engagement rings. And when you go to ringconcierge.com, there's a bespoke section. So here's what's genius about this. You go into the website and you put in like your dream ring from shape to carrots to design, gold, platinum, whatever, right? And then you can say in there, hey, my fiance and I, or soon to be fiance and I are working on this together. Or you can say, you know what? I don't really have anything happening in the near future, but I just want to prepare it for when it does happen, which I love. She also has an amazing uh, brand called Vow by RC, which is beautiful, kind of like pre-designed engagement rings that you can customize to your taste and size. (sighs) Besides that, there are rings, there are bracelets, and there are necklaces that are fabulous. You can just start building your collection and stacking them on yourself. So I'm going to tell you this. If you are thinking about maybe getting engaged and you want to get working on it, go to ringconcierge.com. That's ringconcierge, R-I-N-G-C-O-N-C-I-E-R-G-E.com. And definitely check out their Instagram at ringconcierge. And was that, did that coincide with the, with Wayne's world? Was that at the yeah. same time? Yeah, exactly. So 2012 was the year the book deal got done. I was writing fresh off the boat in my apartment. And then I was, I started filming Wong's world for vice. Yeah. God. Yeah. It was crazy. Vice at that point too, was like a Bible. Yeah. It was, it was, we were the first, Ones where Vice had already been doing all their videos and was dope. Yeah. But Vice had hired this woman, Amy Emmerich, to be like, we're going to do TV quality program. Yeah. And then also Joseph Patel. So Joey Patel, who did that documentary with Questlove. um, Oh, yeah. Joey was one of the original Vice guys. So he was on the show, Amy Emmerich. And then, of course, David Laven was my producer. Yeah. And um, me and Dave came up with the idea for the show in Town, sitting on a bench. Um, and, and that was it. And that was, those were some of the best years of my life. I mean, I'm sure because it was like this weird moment where I had, but it was like, I mean, remember when the magazines used to be like free, remember that issue where yeah, they had free. the photo of the girl, like shooting heroin into her bikini yeah. line. Like it went from being, but it was my first internship with advice. I like, I it was like all that. And then they turned it into like an actual news source essentially, but it was still so playful. It was like this perfect combination of these two worlds. I mean, you couldn't, yeah. that also could not have come at like a better time. What year did you work at Vice? <clears throat> oh God. I was like in college. I was little, I was an intern. It was like nothing. It was like, it was like, I worked with Ben, you know, it was like, it was forever. It, the first, I, the, my first day there, these two other dudes started wondering um, if snorting coffee grounds did the same thing for you as cocaine. And so I, wa- I watched that happen did my first burn? day. I imagine it just burns. It was just like, they were just like writhing in pain from the burn. Yo, the, those vice years though, because I caught the wave. It had like Andy Moretti, all those people were like... Oh my God. You, that... Those, that office was wild. Like yeah. me and Alex Dietrich started like around the same month at Vice. And so mm. we stuck together and Laven also came at the same time. And it was just a wild 
wild ride because you could see their trajectory. Like they were figuring it out mm-hmm. and they had realized that they had something with VBS. And then I came in and I was kind of their first like TV quality show on the internet. They mm-hmm. put a lot of money behind and it just, it just exploded. You know, they, my, my show and then they think they did actions show next. Yeah. Maddie Matheson. And then they just put munchies on our back and it went bananas. So cool. It was, it was really, I've never been a part of success like that. Cause within like two, three years of being there, it was like Shane was a billionaire. Shane, you know? I know. I see him on the beach in Malibu sometimes with his kid. I'm oh, like, yeah. I'm like, I don't know it. Like I know he isn't, you know what I mean? He hasn't, I've like the last time I saw him was like 15 years ago, like at the bar. And I'm like, Dominic, well, I remember what literally we were walking down the beach and he was like, Oh, look at that cute little kid. And I was like, that's fucking Shane, dude. Like you have no clue like who you're casually pointing to. Like what a wild, it's so cool. It's like, it was just so cool. And oh, by the way, like what a great, I mean, we still play back all those stuff. And I will like, if we're having like a stoner night, like we'll watch munchies. Like we still, it's just the best. Like, yeah, the early like 2012, 2013 era of vice is my favorite era of it. Yes. And those videos were good. Now it, it's a lot more institutional. It's on television. Yeah. It's different. Like back then, you know, if you had a good story, you had an idea, you just go to Eddie Moretti, totally. you know, 30 G's, send me to the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Boom. And here, here's, there the were story. so many shows like that. I mean, that's what it was. They were, they were all like that. Yeah. And that's how I would gather information and understand. I mean, that was always so inspiring for me. Well, I grew up watching, obviously like everybody watching Anthony Bourdain. And I was like, my dream is to have a show like that. I was too young at the time and didn't have anything going for me to ever get in that bit. But like now I'm like, you know, Dom and I talk all the time. Where I'm like, dude, we should do something in Sicily. We should, and I'm like, there's no fucking network for this type of stuff that I loved that where we could really yeah. be ourselves and not have to be like weird and uptight and, because of the advertisers and we're not popular enough for real TV, but it's like, I don't want to be a real TV. You know what I mean? It's like, we talk, I talk about this with my manager all the time. I'm like, I miss those days of vice where it was yeah. like. Genre is completely it's gone. washed and fucked up now because they tried to make the shows better. And by increasing the production value, you made the shows worse. Mm-hmm. The shows were better when it was like a girl or a guy with two cameras and a sound person. And yo, we're going in the middle of nowhere, we're going to do some shit. And like, my girl likes Louis Thoreau, so I've been watching Louis Thoreau. And mm-hmm. that is such a like badly shot show, but it's I can't. Perfect. Yeah. It's perfect. <laughs> yes. Because it feels real and honest and you feel there. You when totally feel there. Voiceover over it and licensed music and like really cinematic. I'm like, that's, yo, that is like middle-aged trap. Those are like advertisements for hotels or really? restaurants. Like, I want to see people just running around, banging their heads against the walls. In different well, we watch people's Instagram stories like TV. So why are you trying to make it like a movie? Just make it like yeah. an Instagram story that you could just watch that has like, like, that's what, like, when we were in Sicily, I was like, we just need to be like filming. And then, you know what I mean? But that's, I guess now that's YouTube. Yeah. It, it, Instagram's made the travel show obsolete. You could just completely click on anybody in any city and be like, all right, that's the city. This is the city. Cool, you know. I found that to be the most uh, interesting part of the Anthony Bourdain documentary when, like, you know, Ozia started working on the show, and for the first time, he was like second guessing himself and didn't really feel like he was in the thing. And like, and it's like 
like the that like magic of it being organic and like natural kind of went away and he felt like he wasn't even in his own skin. They were firing people that had been with him for a long time. I just think so that happens to so many people where you're like cruising and that's why people love you. And then someone is like, let's make it better. And it's like, nah. Yeah, that happened to a lot of people at Vice because there were people like from A&E that came in and it was like, we're going to teach you how to make television now. And it was like, yo, actually, we've been making the future of television on the internet. Yeah. And I would say it. I was like, television is furniture. You're just putting our show on a new piece of furniture. Mm. You're going from a laptop to a television. I don't know why the show needs to change, but everything changed. And, and it's like when they come and teach you and tell you how to tell a story, it's no longer your voice. Totally. And I think that a lot of mentors don't get that, which is like, no, there's not no, because someone above them hired them to do some sort of job. And they're like speaking for it's that I, there's too much like money and weird power semantics involved. Yeah. Man, this DP, Sam Levy, he shot like Lady Bird and Francis High. He's an incredible cinematographer. Oh, wow. He was going to, you know, I would talk to him about working on stuff. And he said to me before my first film, he's like, there's going to be a lot of people in this business that come to you and make you feel like they know something that you need to know to be good at making movies. And those are the people you shouldn't trust. He was like, don't trust a single one of those people because the ones that really believe in you are just going to coach you as the person and know mm. that you will figure out what you need to figure out to tell this story. Mm-hmm. And he was, he was very adamant about it. And it's some of the best advice I ever got. So transitioning into, yes, you have, well, okay. So the book became a television show yeah. and then you came out with a movie last year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Last year yeah, came out with a movie and I had written the script. I, I got, it was funny. I did a Sicily episode and I got in trouble on the Sicily episode, I, I ended up in jail, like fighting these white supremacists on the 4th of July. Oh it yeah, was, oh my God, I fucking forgot about that. Yeah, it was really fucking funny. And uh, it was- Where in Sicily movie. were you? Palermo. Yeah. And uh, we, we, we went all over Sicily. It was, it was very- it was Nowadays from Catania. Catania, we went to Catania. Catania was awesome. I had like the best squidding pasta ever in Catania. It's stupid. Out of, out of control. Mm-hmm. And the best part was, homie was making it with dried pasta and just infused the squid ink into it. And I was like, oh, word. Like, you guys believe in dry pasta too. And he's like, a lot of dishes is better with dry pasta. Davide does not. He's like, I don't know why American people think that fresh pasta is like the jam. He's like, it doesn't soak up sauce as well. Like, he's like, you, he's dry bronze. That's what we're making next for Barangini and Pornico. It's like really good dry bronze pasta. Yo, I just used the Barancini today on some rockfish. Did you? So good. So good. I've been using it on rockfish and like, it's excellent. It is a very luscious olive oil, but what (laughs) I did, I seared this rockfish. Then I I always have sofrito in the fridge because I love Cuban food and Puerto Rican food. And I mixed the sofrito with a little bit of Rayo's tomato sauce and put it on the fish. It was crazy. You know what sauce is really good that's pre-made is Monty's. Yeah, yeah, PJ sauce. Yeah. PJ sauce is all, like Davide was like, who's this guy walking around making sauce, like living in Little Italy? He's like Tony Soprano. And now he's like, yeah. fuck with PJ. And that sauce is so good. And we should do PJ's a collab with him. PJ's had like 700 jobs too. I love every, <laughs> every time PJ got like a new job. Like, I love this. But, um, 
Yeah, no. So what happened was I got in trouble. I got suspended advice. And they were just like, look, I was very, very emotional when Vice became Vice Man. Mm-hmm. And I was probably one of the most outspoken just brats. And all, all praise to Shane and Eddie. You know, those guys really, really gave me a lot of opportunity. But um, at the time, I just, I love the old Vice. I yeah, love BBS. And I really was not amenable to like, they put this dude on my show that like had done like, like, like reality, like some goofy competition. Yeah. I'm not going to say his name or call him out, but he just did not understand us. And um, we got in a thing in Sicily because when we went to jail, he wanted to give up the footage and I wouldn't. I was like, I'm going to jail. Um. Embassy is going to get us out. And the embassy did. And afterwards, it was like a mutiny because me and the crew were like, yo, man, like, we're trying to do something here. This isn't like just a job or a career. Like we, we believe in the stories we're telling. Yeah. I can't believe you would give up the footage. So it was very impossible to work with him after. Mm-hmm. And um, so during that suspension, I wrote Boogie. And, uh, um. you know, that was the time and I wrote Boogie and it takes like four or five years to get a movie on, but, uh, that's what happened. And, and so I somehow got my way into like my dream, which is making movies. And How old are you? If you don't mind me asking. 39. Yeah. I turned 40 in a couple of weeks, March 1st. Are you a Taurus? I'm a Pisces. I'm a oh, tour- rising Taurus moon, but Pisces. You're a Pisces. Yeah. What are you? I'm a Scorpio. Oh, word. You want Yeah, we're met. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love it. What's Dave? He's a Leo. Oh, word. That's what's up. Our daughters are Gemini, which is pretty scary. Exciting. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like I can talk shit about other signs because I have the, like, Scorpios are, you know, like, if anyone brings up Scorpio, everyone, the whole room gets silent. So I'm like, I can own that enough to be like, yeah, Gemini's are also like a little fucking loco. Yeah. No, I fuck with Scorpio. You know, it's funny. I have two Capricorns. Well, we're a matching sign. Like we're the best match. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I have two Capricorn parents. So I grew up in a very like strict mm. house where I was like, oh my God. Do these What's your brother? Things? Oh, my middle brother is a Pisces also. We born the same week. And then my youngest brother is like the most affable, pleasant person you'll ever meet. He's a Libra. Oh, so, Libra is okay. Yeah, like everybody loves a Libra. Like if you don't like Libra, get the fuck out. <laughs> okay, so what are you? Is there like I don't? It's so funny to be like, what's next? Because it's like yeah, literally no. done everything. So I'm like, you know, I'm gonna keep cooking with my barancini olive oil. <laughs> That's what I'm gonna do. But also, you know, I have a animated show at HBO called Chinos. And I'm really excited about that it's with like Dr. Wu mm-hmm. and Bernard Chang, who's one of the best like comic book illustrators. And so that one's really fun. You remember uh, the Little Homies toys? Yeah, of course. It's like Little yeah. Homies animated. Mm-hmm. So my idea was so, like, yeah. what if I did the Little Homies, but it's like Asian and Mexican people in Boyle yeah. Heights. And so that's that show. That would be really fun. And then uh, I have a movie I wrote. It's, it's my favorite thing I wrote. It's called Tuna Melt. And, uh, you know, Scooter Braun is producing it. And uh, James Shin, my buddy Dave Appleton. Yeah. So, Dave Appleton is on it too? Dave, yeah, Dave's working on it. Yeah. Of course he is. Yeah, I'm going to Taverna Tony's with Dave Thursday. So. <laughs> I, love, I love Dave, man. Dave's I do too. 
Yeah, so we're doing that movie. We're casting that up right now. But that one is my favorite project. It's very much a, like, I call it a toxic rom-com because it's about a hitman who breaks up with his girlfriend right before a hit and on the hit meets the love of his life. So it's like, you know, but shit happens like that. This is my, I all... This is like a perfect movie for Davide and I because he always wants to watch like Serpico and I'm like, I need a rom-com. Yes, Serpico meets rom-com. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. yes, you guys will have to come on set. It will be fun. I also would just like, if you're willing to open up a restaurant on the east side, that yeah. would, we'd all appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, I, you know, I have a, I, I need I more restaurants over here. I opened a cafe in my house for two people. It's just me and my girl. I make her coffee every morning. It's called <laughs> IBS Cafe. IBS Cafe! <laughs> IBS Cafe. I purchased a La Marzocco espresso machine. That's Dominic's dream! Oh, come hang. Come hang. You guys oh. are- Come hang. I make coffee. Give me two weeks to get good, and then you guys come. Okay. And- I'm going to make you a meal with the barancini and, and, and the Also, you should have him just make you like pomodoro. Like the way that he just makes pomodoro is stupid. Yeah, maybe so you good. cook and I make the espresso after. It would be good. We'll do a combo because yeah. I've had so much of his pasta. I would like some of your food. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> that time we hung out at that party in the kitchen, I was like, I, was so I love this man. I got his phone number. I, said, I, I need your phone number. I know. And you guys did like, and I know. And, it, and then fucking the, the, world, the world shut down. <laughs> <laughs> but we've been also meaning to hang out with Will too. So also yeah. I'm like really trying to bring back the dinner party. Like I just, I think that like gather, like we want to do like dinners and just like get people yeah. who we like, you know, where you're like, Oh, I would love to hang out with that person, but it never happens. Cause it's not just like in your radar of like, you know, those no, are the dinners that we happen. Like we'll get Will and Lonnie and Dave and, and, yeah. and you know, you know, Nick and Holly, we'll, we'll do dinner. Yeah. We'll do dinner we'll put it all together. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking so much time to talk to me. This is just fabulous. Yeah, and it's so, no, you're the best. And it's nice to be able to, to, to hear everything from you and not just say hello at the party. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. We'll hang, like for real, we're going to make plans. We're going to hang out. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Of course. All right. Feel Bye. better. And that, ladies and gentlemen, concludes this week's episode of Everything is the Best. I hope you enjoyed it. Please rate, review, subscribe, all that stuff. Maybe leave a comment. But remember, shitty comments are for shitty people. Go ahead and follow me on Instagram at Pia Barangini. And I hope you have a fabulous, fabulous rest of your day. Love you. Ciao.